can hear you, so that's a good thing. Good morning. So good to be with you all this morning and to uh, be able to share this service with you. We've had so many blessings to think about and to talk about. One of the blessings is that the roof has been repaired and we are able to enjoy the building again without rain coming through. And it's just a great blessing to see how God has provided. I'm just so pleased to be here these days. And this has been a full week. So much has been happening. One of the, of course, uh, opportunities I had this past week was to and, and I don't often have this opportunity as a transitional pastor, but to lead in a funeral service, the uh, funeral service for Alan Jones. And it was a wonderful blessing to meet this family and to spend time with them uh, in uh, Lethbridge this week. <clears throat> and I uh, trust that you'll continue to pray for them. There will be an event later on in Rentham to celebrate his life for those of you who knew them. So keep your... Uh, ears open for that opportunity. You know, I hadn't had the opportunity to get to know Alan Jones at all. That's the other amazing thing. But I felt honored to be called upon to be there uh, with the family. It was an opportunity to share the gospel. Funeral services can be wonderful opportunities to share the good news of Christ. I once knew a pastor, an older pastor by that time, and he said, my favorite thing as a pastor, is to conduct funerals. Isn't that amazing? Why would that be? Well, people are sensitive and responsive during a time like that, and they're open to hear the good news of Jesus. And I found that to be really true this week. People were anxious to to have hope in the midst of uh, their loss. I truly believe that it is our understanding and response to the gospel which is critical to what church life and ministry is really all about. This good news we've been singing about, that, that the God of the universe in Christ, the one who created all this, came down to us to identify himself fully with us, to die for us, then to rise again from the dead, and uh, someday to come again. This gospel is, is not only the message, but it's the power, the dynamic of what causes the church to exist and to move forward. <clears throat> so it's, that's why we've been giving attention to this kind of thing during these days. Um, because uh, in Ecclesiastes, for example, <clears throat> one of the purposes of this book is to draw the attention of a younger generation to faith. And if you've read Ecclesiastes, anybody read it recently? Well, how about that? Now, listen, let me give you an assignment. (laughs) You need to commit yourself to read the book of Ecclesiastes because you'll discover things there that you may have never seen before um, if you haven't read it recently, especially But when you read it, you can see that it shares a lot in common with the book of Proverbs, much of it also attributed to Solomon. Both are written with the idea of passing true wisdom on to the next generation. So if you're a young person especially, you ought to take special note. And if you're an older person, you need to read it in order to figure out how to pass on 
this good news or this, uh, this message to a younger generation. And as we saw last Sunday, the writer does this at first, especially painting a rather gruesome picture of the folly of life as it continues day by day. The dominant theme of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless, 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 uh, says the, says the uh, preacher in the first part of this book, chasing after the wind, and that there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> As I was studying, I came across <clears throat> uh, an interesting uh, uh, illustration of this. <laughs> I don't know what you make of this, but I thought I'll show it to you. I think it's, uh, it's an insurance advertisement somewhere, and uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, saying, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're injured, well then good. And that's kind of, I guess they're, they're appealing to people to buy this insurance. But look at the caption over the top. This is kind of what you see when you read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, uh, it's not a very pretty picture at first. And this expression of cynicism seems rather strange when you realize that they appear to be spoken by someone who had the reputation of being the wisest and richest man in the whole world. And if anyone should have been optimistic and enthusiastic and so on, we find the very opposite to be true. Because Solomon had it all. Wisdom, power, pleasures of every kind. But in the, in the end, despite all he came to know or possess and experience, He concluded that life is empty. Life is full of despair, he writes in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11. And there's a sense in which his words are more relevant than ever. Because at a very deep level, to the extent that people allow themselves to think about it, our world exists under a huge black cloud. And this feeling of despair seems to become especially prominent in our time. People in general don't think much about God. <clears throat> they, don't, they don't give much attention to him. And, uh, it, you know, it seems like we've moved further and further in this direction. They have a materialistic focus. The world is doing well, at least our part of the world is doing really well, especially this part of the world in many ways, very materially successful. But yet there's a kind of vacuum in the psyche of our society. And it seems our sense of progress otherwise is often accompanied by a larger sense of despair. And I think this is what Solomon is saying in this book, which is now 3,000 years old or more. The world is a place of despair. But this is so, Solomon seems to be saying, because we have lost our connection with God. And uh, so in the end, Ecclesiastes is really a description of life in a world cursed by the fall of humanity into sin. And as I said last Sunday, it's really a commentary, if you think about it, on the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Ecclesiastes is an extension of what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve Eve fell into sin. I was walking along in our community last summer and uh, just, you know, it's an average community in many ways, actually uh, a beautiful community. 
But I saw this sign, and I took a picture of it, and I thought, well, that sure represents what our world is all about. And if you look closely at the sign, you'll see some themes there. Some of them are great, right? But even the colors of the sign sort of speak to you about what this person's life is all about, right? And this is the world in which we live, a world that just thinks without God, we can do it. It's about our humanistic desires and so on. But in in Ecclesiastes, it is evident that there is something else in this book. And and this message is different today because of of this from the last one. Because uh, if you if you look at it, it's a bit of a jewel in the midst of God's revelation. For sprinkled throughout this book are frequent references to God and some wonderful signs of His grace. You know, like crocuses <clears throat> pushing up through winter's frosty earth. These signs of grace in the midst of the darkness of this book begin to point us to its ultimate message of hope. And we can't help but see that God is able to bring beauty out of ashes. Or as it says in chapter 3, that he will make everything beautiful in its time because he has set eternity in our hearts, it says in this particular place. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we have this connection and we can't get around it. Grace is all about the gifts that God's goodness gives us. And it describes his, his goodness toward us, despite the reality of sin. And if we look for these, we can see signs of grace everywhere. Have you ever wondered what the world would be like without many instances of God's grace. What would it be like to have a long season of winter, for example, or a continuous season of, of winter? I think this is what C.S. Lewis was seeking to capture in that classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember that book? In fact, it was G.K. Chesterton, whom you may have heard of, the English writer of the last century who also actually became a believer because of C.S. Lewis' testimony and his work and the things that he said. But here's what G.K. Chesterton said, and I've thought about this an awful lot. He said it was the evidence of God's grace in the world that drew him to consider the truth of the Christian message because of the evidences of it, like vestiges, he said, of a once perfect world. So there are so many signs of grace in the world because this world once existed as a perfect place. And some of those those, uh, images remain, and that's why we see so many evidences of God's uh, grace and his power and his greatness. One of the most attractive features of living where we do is the occurrence of the seasons, spring and summer, wonderful signs of grace in an otherwise cold and dark world. Right now we're enjoying summer, but soon we will be into fall and then winter. And each season has its own special grace. Fall with its many colors, and and then uh, winter with its white beauty. (laughs) Spring with its new life and summer and and its sunshine. Each season reflecting something of God's goodness and grace, right? 
Isn't that true now? Aren't you enjoying summer? Isn't it amazing, this, this stuff that God gives us in the summer season? <clears throat> and it's interesting to see how nature, though sometimes harsh, is peppered with illustrations of God's goodness. And this is also what we find in this book of Ecclesiastes. I wonder if you, in your reading of this book, when you read it, <laughs> you may find some of these signs of grace. And one way to recognize the grace passages in the book of Ecclesiastes is by the occurrence of the words, nothing better than. And there are quite a few instances of this phrase. And as I went through the book, I found myself categorizing these sort of sayings, that expression, into three groups. Are you ready for this? You got a pen? Want to take this down? (laughs) Well, here they are. The first one is contentment. And I think this sign of grace comes to to us in chapter 2, verse 24 to 25, for example. It says, uh, a person can do nothing except... uh, No, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And uh, in chapter 4, which begins with a reference to the dead and the better than value of never having been born into a sinful world, verse 3, but there's a reference there that I want to especially note, and it's in chapter 4, Verse 6, and it says, um, let's see here, it says, uh, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And this reference to tranquility uh, shows up a number of times in uh, Ecclesiastes, and it's one of the first signs of grace. In uh, chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, this sense of contentment is spoken of as the daily, of, uh, of the daily living of your life and eating and drinking and finding satisfaction with your work. It even speaks of enjoyment, and it speaks of this being from the hand of God, which is what grace means, a gift from God. We find another reference to this aspect of life in uh, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift of God. And we find it again in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where it says, Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink, and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. So we conclude that one of the greatest expressions of God's grace in the sin-cursed world is having satisfying work and enough to eat and drink. And there are two aspects of this that I think are worth noting. One is that it is good and right to appreciate the many instances of God's grace. 
in the food and drink and work that he gives. Sometimes we might find guilty, or we might feel guilty, rather, about these blessings in our lives, perhaps because we think we do not deserve them. The fact is, we don't. We don't deserve these things. They are gifts of God's grace. It is not wrong to enjoy the good things of life as long as they are in moderation and don't become ends in themselves, which happens all the time. We should appreciate them not as idols of our hearts, but as gifts from God. And there's another aspect of this encouragement that that we should be satisfied with the ordinary things of life. It has to do with this matter of uh, ambition. Ambition can become a terrible thief of the joy of living. And as chapter 4, verse 4 points out, it seems that so much of life consists of people envy of their neighbors. It says... And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one's person, one person's envy of another. So much activity is based on envy. Social media is all about envy in many ways, right? If you, if you look at it seriously. It's the idea of always thinking that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Or that someone else has what you think would make you happy. And if this is the case, Ecclesiastes has some great news for us that we should make the most of life where it finds us. We should learn to be satisfied with the ordinary things of life. Better is a handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. It's not wrong to recognize God's love and goodness and the daily gifts that he brings us. Every time we take a breath of air, or eat a mouthful of good food, or have a day of work, we should realize that these really are gifts from God. So contentment is the first sign of God's grace in this barren land of our existence here in the sin-cursed world. But here's another one. It is companionship. And it comes before us in chapter 4 verses 9 to 12. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one of them can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Isn't that great? And here I think we have a hint of another great expression of God's grace toward us in this barren world. And this is what I call it, companionship. Remember the three C's, by the way. There's another one coming. But when we're talking about here, what we're talking about here is the tremendous blessing in life of being loved and loving someone of friendship, of fellowship, of relationship, and, of course, of marriage. Marriage isn't a command, and, of course, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily satisfy the deepest yearning of our hearts for love, but I'm sure God's intention for marriage, that it ought to be a wonderful expression of God's grace toward us. (laughs) You may... You may... uh, know of this. There's a a Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates who lived in the 5th century BC, 
And you may have heard him uh, heard that he said, by all means, marry. If you have a good marriage, you'll be happy. If you have a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> Poor Socrates, he must have uh, not been too, uh, it must not have been too good for him. <laughs> and it's probable that there may be a lot of married philosophers around. <clears throat> Obviously, this was not God's intention. In Ecclesiastes 9.9, we read, Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this, too, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. It seems God wants us to discover the meaning of his grace toward us through the relationships that he gives us through fellowship. And marriage, of course, is the most personal and most intimate. It's true that one of the main ways to enjoy life is to share it with someone else. We've been made to be social beings, to have connection, to have fellowship with others. And we, as we look at this passage, we, can, we see some of the blessings that come from a good friendship, mutual encouragement, warmth and comfort in, in a cold world, protection in the face of enemy fire, and strength for the journey. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. It demonstrates the fact that there is strength in like-minded fellowship, <clears throat> especially when one of those strands is the Lord himself. And this is why we say there is nothing in all the world like Christian, like a Christian marriage, a relationship in which each has put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, a relationship in which Jesus is invited to be present through prayer, through worship, and through working together. <clears throat> is it working like that for you? I trust it is. If not, keep praying and trusting that you are able to come to that kind of experience in your own relationship and marriage or in other relationships that God gives you. So that's the first two. Uh, there's one more. It's, I call it circumspection, which is a kind of a strange word, but I think sums up what this uh, book is really all about, which is wisdom. It comes before us in the better than of chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. It says the youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor, there was no one, no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing of the wind. Well, as it says here, <clears throat> the youth may have come from prison or he may have been, been born in poverty, but by the wisdom that he acquired, he was able to become a huge success. And that's why wisdom is such a mighty expression of God's grace in the midst of a gray and gruesome world. 
even though a person may, may be at a disadvantage, the gift of God's wisdom can change everything. And wisdom, it is, it is evident, is not limited to old age. In fact, a person like the foolish king in this story can grow old without wisdom. And the young man's with wisdom can have power and influence that surpasses the old king. This is one of evidence that this ancient book is really for young people. As in the Proverbs just before this, <clears throat> so Ecclesiastes' wisdom is held up <clears throat> as the greatest treasure of all. <clears throat> it was God's wisdom, <clears throat> God's gift of wisdom to Solomon that enabled him to become such a great man of wealth and reputation. The only problem in the end <clears throat> was that the fruit of wisdom became <clears throat> uh, more important to him than wisdom itself. And maybe Solomon realized this in the end, which is why this, his sermon in Ecclesiastes ends with a very strong appeal for young people to heed the call to wisdom. And I've said before that what distinguishes Ecclesiastes from the spirit of our own age are the many references to the reality of God, his grace, and our ultimate accountability toward him. And this is where the book of Ecclesiastes ends. If you thought the main message of Ecclesiastes was about the fact that life is meaningless, that really is not the main point. All along, the writer is building toward one grand conclusion that comes before us in the last two chapters of the book. And as you read Ecclesiastes, you discover there's a lot of excellent practical advice in it, but you'll also notice that it doesn't come to us without reference to God. Throughout the book, God's existence is something assumed. Though people live in despair, their existence in this world is by God's design and for his purpose. And though life is truly burdensome because of sin, God has not left us without a witness to his mercy and grace evident in so many different ways in this book. It's Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. There is much about God that we may not understand, but we, we know that he is the maker of all things, as it says in chapter 11, verse 55. And because of that... <clears throat> It is important to grasp the fact that we are all accountable to him. As I said, Solomon is especially anxious to convey this message to those who are young. And it is to them that he turns his attention near the end of the book in Ecclesiastes 11.9 to 12.1. This is what he writes. You who are young, be happy <clears throat> while you are young. <clears throat> and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, and, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your creator, 
in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And as you go on to read the rest of chapter 12 there, he begins to tell you what old age is like, and some of us are familiar with all of that. <clears throat> if ever there was a message for serious second thought, this is it. We should enjoy the blessing of youth, but not at the expense of forgetting about the inevitability of aging and the prospect of death. And one of the best ways to get the most out of life is to take seriously the matter of aging. It's important for those who are young to remember that youthfulness is limited. And those of us who are older know all too well how this is true. For there was a time when we were so taken up with youthful energy and enthusiasm and ambition that we scarcely ever thought about getting older. But somewhere between 35 and 45, was it? <laughs> Somewhere's in there, we suddenly became aware of the fact that we weren't going to be young forever. <clears throat> the clock is ticking for all of us. Sooner or later, there comes a time when we near the end. And the main point of this passage is that the sooner we come to realize the reality of these things, and our accountability toward God in them, the better off we will be. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. You probably know by now that the main message of this book is found in the last couple of verses of the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. It says, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. So, in summary, Ecclesiastes paints a dire picture of the emptiness and despair of life here on earth, but it also shows us signs of God's grace, of which the greatest is true wisdom. And true wisdom, the book summarizes here, is found in fearing God and in keeping his commandments. But this expression of the fear of the Lord is the key to rising above a life of despair. <clears throat> and uh, it's, it's so important for us that we understand this, that it means to acknowledge the greatness and awesomeness of God. It is the fear of the Lord. It is in the fear of the Lord that we find hope and are ultimately <clears throat> led to the reality of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And that's why I bring this book to your attention today, because it is in the gospel that we find hope <clears throat> and eternal life. It is in the fear of the Lord that there is an antidote to sin, and it leads us to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ, as it says in Colossians 2, 3. And so my hope and prayer for you is that you have found this wisdom. And my hope and prayer for the Tabor Evangelical Free Church is that this wisdom is what its life and ministry is all about. This gospel, this good news in Christ, that's why... I bring all of this to you today. I hope that you see 
that though Ecclesiastes has much in it that is, oh, just hard to take, yet there is a message of hope there that leads us to understand the tremendous significance of who Jesus is, and that's how Jesus is revealed to us through the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Father, this has been a, quite a journey, but <clears throat> we see this morning in a new way the wonder and beauty of your plan through your son Jesus to come to show us what life is really all about. Thank you for your great grace toward us and the many ways in which we see that in our daily lives. Thank you for, for health, for strength, for good food, for fresh air to breathe, for beautiful things to see, for work to give our lives to. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. But help us to see that you've given us all these things because you want us to discover the treasure there is in your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning as we conclude this service that this will be where our thoughts are, that you will help us to open our hearts to you in a new and a fresh way as we remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.